0: Um, so I've got another story about my kids and how their behavior is just such a picture of uh, what our behavior with the Lord looks like. Uh, I shared last week, if you were here, um, I shared last week that my, my wife and I, Vrenny and I, we often have to look out for like, the safety and the preservation of the life of our one-year-old daughter. Because her brother, her three, almost four-year-old brother, uh, he can get a little excited. He get rough. He get rough with her. And sometimes we're not able to prevent every injury or or accident. Sometimes Rennie will only be able to catch like the tail end uh, of an incident. And, you know, she'll just, she'll just see our daughter just like laid out on the floor and crying, you know, and, uh, and so she, and she, and then she sees Caleb, like, like trying to console her, like, no, it's okay, it's okay. And so she'll turn to Caleb and she'll ask him what happened you know, and, and to which he responds, well, I was just walking next to her, and then, boom, and then he does, like, this spin, and then he falls on the ground, like, showing, like, how she fell, like, she did this crazy spin falling to the ground, but he hasn't really said anything, you know, he hasn't answered the question of what happened, and so it's clear he's, he's worried about saying something incriminating, you know, he, he already knows, and so my wife will ask him again, Caleb, what happened and then he'll look around like as if he's like scanning his brain like okay what's the what, what what can i say that won't incriminate me and he'll say well i was walking and then whoop and then boom boom boom, boom. and then he does the spin again and falls on the ground showing that this is how she fell but we don't. We still don't know. And sometimes this goes on for five, four or five like foops and boom, boom and spin, spinning falls to the ground. And the whole time, my wife Rennie, she's 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 trying to hold back her laughter because you know th- this is a serious situation. Like somebody got hurt, so she's trying to hold back her laughter. But this kid is saying foop and boom, and doing spins on the ground. So she's just like, dude, this is hilarious. But like, got to get through this. We got to figure out what's going on. So finally. After four or five of these things, he reveals that he knocked her over on purpose or he, like, took a toy away from her and pushed her. And so then we can go on with the, you know, verbal discipline in that scenario. Now, my wife knew the whole time what had happened. Like, she knew. She already knew what happened. Like, it's happened enough times that she already knew all of the details of the situation. We just wanted... Caleb to honestly admit to it. We just wanted him to to confess what he did so that we can move on to to letting him know that that's not okay. And then here's the obvious application. 1 John 1, 9. It says that if we confess our sins to God, that he is faithful and righteous to forgive us and to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. Yet so often in our conversations with the Lord, we try to make excuses or provide reasonings for our sins or distract from our sins. Like, it, it, it wasn't that I did this thing, Lord. It was, it was because the way that this person reacted to me and I didn't like it. So that's why I said what I said and did what I did. But, but if they didn't do that, I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have said what I said or did what I did, Lord. Or we'll say, I was just walking by and, and then do a spinning fall to the ground equally ridiculous, but the Lord already knows. He already knows, and we know that he knows, so why not just be honest about our sin and confess it outright from the beginning? Lord, it doesn't matter how this person reacted to me, it doesn't matter what this person did to me, what I did, what I said was wrong, it was sin. I, I, I confess that to you, I'm sorry, help me to repent. Cleanse me of my unrighteousness. And there may be an occasion tonight for all of us to have a look at ourselves. And we're going to have to decide Am I going to meander around my sin? Am I going to dance around the issue without actually outright admitting my sin to the Lord? Or am I just going to be straight up with God? Am I just going to be straight up with Him because He already knows? I know that He already knows. So I'll just confess it so he can start the refining process, and we'll see what God does tonight. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 3 once again, and tonight we're going to be covering another couple of verses. Uh, We'll essentially be covering verses 3 and 4. So once again, we're moving slowly through the gospel of Matthew, but whatever, we're here. You know, what else are we going to do? If if we're going to be here, might as well just keep going through the Bible, right? Um, So we're going to take our time. And so the title of tonight's message, for those of you that are taking notes, recommend you take notes, this is uh, Search and Know, search and know, K-N-O-W, search and know. And the three points that we're going to be looking at tonight, point number one is covered in maggots, covered in maggots. Uh, point number two, beans and rice, maggots and beans and rice, that sounds delicious. Um, and then our third point of the night is sounding heretical, sounding heretical, uh, but before we get into the text, I just thought um, I'd share something interesting that I read as I've been preparing over the past few weeks. Uh, it's kind of interesting. Uh, so in Matthew chapter 3, verse 3, uh, uh, an Old Testament verse is quoted, and it's quoted from the book of Isaiah, and it's describing John the Baptist's ministry. And the book of Isaiah is sometimes uh, referred to as the Bible in miniature. I don't know if you've ever heard this. Uh, I never did. But it's referred to as the Bible in miniature. And the reason for this is that the book of Isaiah, it's broken up into 66 chapters. The Bible is comprised of 66 books. In the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, the Old Testament of Isaiah, uh, there seems to be an emphasis on sin and God's judgment. While in the last 27 chapters of Isaiah, the New Testament of Isaiah, there seems to be an emphasis on God's grace. And chapter 53 is where we see the suffering servant, which we know to be Jesus Christ. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah correlate to the first 39 books of the Bible, the the Old Testament, and the last 27 chapters of Isaiah correlate to the last 27 books of the Bible, the New Testament. And so the first chapter, the first chapter of Isaiah's New Testament, Isaiah 40, that's where we find our verse that talks about John the Baptist's ministry. That's where we hear about the voice calling out to clear the way for the Lord. This was the beginning of God's grace in the New Testament of Isaiah. And that's how God's grace begins in the actual New Testament of the Bible. John the Baptist, the voice calling out in the wilderness to clear the way for the Lord. Not something to build doctrine or dogma off of, but it's interesting to observe nonetheless. Worst case scenario, It means absolutely nothing, and it's just an interesting coincidence, but best-case scenario, God planned the whole thing out, the themes in Isaiah, the chapter structure in Isaiah, the number of canonized Old Testament books, the number of canonized New Testament books, uh, the introduction of John the Baptist. He orchestrated everything, and we praise him for his attention to these particular details, but either way, he's still God. He's still sovereign, so I just thought I'd share that. It's pretty interesting. Um, So now... Now let's get into our study. Let's get into our study. And so we're going to begin reading the verses for tonight. We're going to read Matthew 3, verses 1 through 6. Like I said, we're going to be covering verses 3 through 4, but let's, let's, let's read verses 1 through 6 together, and then we'll see, what, we'll, see what, we'll, we'll see what meal God prepared for us tonight to eat. All right, so Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, it says, Now in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, the voice of one calling out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. At that time, Jerusalem was going out to him and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. So now let's get into our first point, which is covered in maggots. Covered in maggots. So, if you were with us last week, you know, we went over verses 1 and 2 of Matthew chapter 3. We looked at John's message, which was that, that people needed to repent. People needed to repent. And they needed to repent because the kingdom of heaven was at hand. The king was coming, and he was, he was, he was getting the people ready, John was, to receive this king by telling them that they needed to get right. That you need to get right. They need to prepare the way for the king. Everyone has obstacles that are standing in the way of the king entering our lives, of God entering our lives. And plainly put, those obstacles are our sins. It's our sin. And those sins need to be removed. The amazing thing, though, is that God is the one who removes them eternally. God removes them. God atones for, he has atoned for our sins by sending his son to suffer under his wrath and take the punishment for our sins. He treated Christ as if he committed every sin that we have ever committed. And through our faith in that event, that he died for our sins and rose again, God then transfers all of the perfection and righteousness of Christ to us. He transfers it to us because of our faith. So God takes care of the atonement for our sins by his grace I'm about to sound like Gary Vee, if y'all know who Gary V. is. He removes our sins in the macro, right? He removes our sins in the macro, but we still need to deal with our sins in the micro, you know, in our daily lives, in our daily walk. And in response to his grace, we need to repent. We need to repent. We need to change our minds about our sin. We need to change our lifestyle in regards to sin. We need to change how we feel about our sin. We may think that our sins are harmless because they don't involve anyone else. You know, there are no victims as a result of your decision to get drunk. No one's hurt by you watching pornography or having consensual sex with random people. It's really not affecting anyone, the fact that you are actively living in a homosexual lifestyle. And you may be right. There very well may be zero people negatively affected by these and other lifestyle choices. But what does God say about these things? What does the creator of the universe, the creator of you and me, what does he say about these things? What does he say about these things in his word? Well, plain and simple, these things are sinful. God has revealed to us his standard, and his standard is perfection. We see it in the Ten Commandments. And we see it throughout other portions of scripture, all of the standards that God has set for humanity. But if you sit here tonight and you think that it's ridiculous that God would enforce a rule or a law that literally has no victims, no one's harmed by it. It's not evil in in the sense that it doesn't negatively affect others. And actually, it, it, it has a perceived positive effect on you you should know that it's not about the negative effect to others or the perceived positive benefit to yourself. It's about trusting what God says to be true, and it's about obedience. When Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden, God told them not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He said if they ate of it, that they would surely die. If they simply trusted in what he said and obeyed his command, all would have been well. Everything would have been fine. However, Satan came along to cast doubt on the trustworthiness of God's word, and he twisted God's word, basically telling Eve that consuming the fruit would actually have a positive effect, that disobedience to God, sinning against God, would provide a benefit to you, is what Satan said. And it's not like the fruit was like rotted and covered in maggots. The Bible says that the fruit appeared nourishing. It appeared delicious. It was good for food, and it it was a delight to the eyes, is what the Bible says. And it had the added benefit of a perceived positive effect overall. We can be like God. But eating the fruit brought death. And so it is the same today. These things that we do, these victimless lifestyle choices that we make, these sins that have no negative effect to others, these forbidden fruits. They appear nourishing. They appear delicious. They appear to even have a perceived positive benefit to us, but they're killing us. They have killed us. Our sin has caused us to be born dead in our sins and our trespasses, born with a great need of being forgiven and a great need to be born again because of our sin. All of our victim filled and victim less sins have killed us. The net effect to others is irrelevant. The net effect to us, to ourselves is what matters. And the effect is that we now have a debt that we cannot pay. God requires perfection, but we can't give perfection. So now we're going to be punished for our imperfections because those imperfections, those sins were all decisions that we made. We decided to do those things. But God, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we were dead in our wrongdoings, he made us alive together with Christ because it's by grace that we have been saved. It's by grace that we are saved. But you have to believe it. And going back to where this tangent began, you have to repent you have to repent, which, as I said, is to change your thoughts, change your emotions, change your activities in regards to sin. To turn away from your sin, forsake your sin, regardless of how you feel about your sin, and move towards God's holiness. God is right, God is correct, not you. I remember when I first came to Christ, when I first heard the gospel, and the Lord opened my eyes to see the truth of the gospel. I was so handcuffed to my sin. I knew that I had to repent. I knew that I had to give up my sin and, and, and start going towards God. But I loved it. I loved, I loved drinking. I loved having sex. I loved lying. I loved stealing. I loved breaking all of the commandments because they provided a benefit for me. If I, when, I, when I worked at Coffee Bean, we used to sell CDs. I wanted that CD, but I didn't want to pay for it. So I stole it. It provided a positive benefit for me, but it was killing me. So I prayed constantly that God would change me. God, please change me. I love these things. I need you to change me. And he did. He changed me. As I pursued him and his word, he changed me from the inside out because I knew that he was right. God was right. Regardless of how I felt about my sin, regardless of the perceived positive benefit, God was right and I was wrong. So we need to repent. And that was John the Baptist's message. He said, repent, because the king was coming. And the way to your heart and mind, the, the pathway to your being, it needs to be clear. And so this brings us to our second point, beans and rice, beans and rice. So, so God in John the Baptist, both in John the Baptist's proclamation and in his appearance, he's communicating to us the humility of of Christ, the humility of of this king. The coming of a king was typically like a huge event. You know, it was a very big deal. A very big deal would be made whenever a king was coming. Uh, No expense would be spared, and the herald himself, the one making the announcement of the king, no expense would be spared for him either. He would look kingly, he would look royal, because he was a representative of the king that he was announcing. So it was just, it was a big deal. But that's not what we see in the announcement of the coming of the king of the universe. Instead, God uses a random man, this random man who was born into a a priestly family to parents who were beyond the childbearing age, and this man would forsake the family business of priesting in order to be a prophet of God. But why did he do it? Was the money better? Did it pay better to be a prophet? Did you see prophets from being a prophet? I don't really, uh, I don't really watch The Office anymore, but I remember there is this, uh, there's this, there's an episode where this character Dwight Schrute, he was talking. Everybody's already laughing, because <laughs> he's ridiculous. But um, he was talking about how he would never leave Dunder Mifflin, yeah, because he he values loyalty, and he said, you know, in fact, I think one of the reasons that I'm getting that I'm getting paid is for my loyalty. But then he also said, but if there's another place who values that loyalty more highly. Then I'm going to go to wherever they value that loyalty the most. Basically, communicating, he's not really loyal. <laughs> it's all about the money. Um, but no, that's not why John the Baptist didn't go the priest route like his father and became a prophet, not prophet, but prophet of God, speaking the words of God. The money wasn't better. In fact, John's lifestyle and his dress as a prophet proved that it wasn't about money. It was actually about loyalty to the Lord and obedience to his calling. Matthew 3, 4, it describes John the Baptist's clothing as a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt. And his diet consisted of locusts and honey. Locusts and honey. Peter's having a cow right now. But not an actual cow because I don't think that would be an ethical treatment of a cow to use it for a metaphor. So like a faux cow, Peter is having a faux cow right now at John the Baptist eating locusts and honey, draping himself, dripping in camel skin and, and, a, and a leather belt. This dude is everything that PETA hates. But over the years, I've heard many people, many people use these facts about John the Baptist as a way of saying that this guy was strange and weird, myself included. Like, whoa, camel hair, leather belt, he ate locusts and honey, trip out, man, this guy's weird. John the Baptist, he was indeed strange and weird, but not for those reasons. The clothing that John the Baptist wore, it was actually common. It was common clothing for desert nomads, people who would spend their lives traveling through the desert wilderness. You know, and these people, these nomadic desert dwellers, they were poor. They were poor. They didn't have homes. They didn't have a stable financial situation. They were poor. And when you look at John the Baptist's diet, locusts, desert locusts, which were large grasshoppers, and honey, this was and is to this day the food, the diet of the poorer people who live in the Middle East and, and Africa. So, John the Baptist, he wasn't strange and weird because he was like this crazy, eccentric guy. Like, you know, he was rocking Birkenstocks with socks and, you know, playing his guitar in the desert, you know. Like, he was strange and weird because he was a messenger of God, he was a representative of God, much like the religious leaders of the day saw themselves as, but he looked nothing like them. He looked and lived nothing like them. His food, his clothing, his lifestyle was actually an indictment against the established religious order of the day, which consisted of people who were self-satisfying and self-indulgent. John's lifestyle also called out those the regular Jews who viewed the religious leaders and coveted their self-satisfying and self-indulgent lifestyles. It's important to know that John, he, he never called anybody to live the way that he lived. At least scripture has no record of that. And, and John the Baptist's message, his message was clear. It wasn't, hey, live like me. His message was repentance, conversion, in light of the kingdom of heaven coming near. It was clear. But the way that he was living and the way that he dressed, the way that he nourished himself, it's a reminder to all of us of the many things and pleasures that can hold a higher place in our lives above God. John's clothing was common and poor. His meals were those of the poor. John was not about having his best life now or even the least bit concerned with having a comfortable life. He didn't care about his image or what he was wearing. Probably about a year ago now, um, it was at a midweek service, it was the after service, and uh, I'm just, you know, chatting with people, and then I'm, I'm, I'm meandering through the foyer, and then I get the sense that someone is, someone's watching me. And so then I look over, and it's Ronald. Ronald's looking at me. Ronald, raise your hand. There you go. That's Ronald. Ronald's looking at me, and he has, he has this smile on his face. And I'm like, well, so I go up to him, like, hey, man, what's up? Why, like, why are you smiling at me? Like, what, what's going on? Like, what's the secret? And um, and he just says, Man, you really don't care how you look, huh? <laughs> and I was just like Dude, what did I do to you? Like why? <laughs> like I'm I'm just walking. Like, <laughs> like, why you gotta be so mean? Um now even though even though it sounded insulting, and it was, um, <laughs> I guess I know now what he meant, especially after he, like, took a few steps back and, like, explaining himself, like, no, 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 no. But he was just, Ronald was just noting that it was evident that, like, I'm not trying to be all up in, you know, the fashion magazines or blogs, I guess, nowadays. Like, I'm not trying to, like, it's, it's not on my radar. Like, I don't care. I don't care about these things. Like, I really don't care about looking a certain way. Like, I don't, I don't care about looking like a young adult's pastor. Like I, like, I like breathing in my clothes, you know? I'm not trying to have the tight, the tight jeans and, and, you know, the, the tunic, you know, to, 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 to cover up what doesn't need to be covered up if I wore pants that fit. But because my pants are super tight, I got to make sure I wear the long tunic, you know? But there was a point in time, another story, there was a point in time... Uh, at my first church where I got saved, uh, where um, my pastor he he placed me he he made me the youth leader. You know, so I was I was like 19, 20 years old, and he made me the youth leader. So I was like teaching on Sundays and stuff like that. Um, and so there was a point where uh, another church they came in to help us with uh, with purchasing the building that we had purchased um, because we started to be unable to afford the building that we had purchased because. You know, we're trying to start a Christian nightclub and all that stuff. But anyway, not my idea. Uh, definitely not my idea. Um, so yeah. So this other church came in, and they were more established. And so their youth, their youth guy, their youth pastor. Um, he was like, "Hey, man, we got this youth pastor coming in. He's visiting. He's touring our churches. He's part of our church network. Like, you want him to teach, your, you know, your your youth group on Sunday?" And I was like, "Hey, yeah, sure. Why not? I'll take the day off." And so they, this guy. This guy came in, This youth pastor, super hip, super cool, fast-talking guy. Like, yeah, he just knows exactly what to say. He doesn't stumble over his words. Like, he just, he's got it. He's got it down. Cool shirt, cool pants, not too loose, not too tight, you know. Cool shoes. His hair gelled up. His hair's all spiky, you know. Like, he's just, like, he's got it. This was the early 2000s. Um, (laughs) 2009-ish. So, yeah, spiky hair was still okay. But this dude was like at least in his 50s. Like, this is an old man, <laughs> like, it's an old man looking like this. Um, and it just, it just screamed, like, trying to relate, like, trying to look cool, trying to look like you guys, you know, and uh, ultimately, whatever, you know, whatever, do your thing, do your thing if it works for you. But for me, I just don't feel the need to look a certain way, like, or to have a certain image. Like, I just, I really don't care, like Ronald said, but not in the way that he said it. Like, I just, I really don't care. <laughs> That's not, that's not on my radar. It's not to say that I don't like see things it's like, oh, that's a nice shirt. I would, I'd like to have that shirt. Like, oh, those cool, cool shoes, cool boots. But it's not my main focus, obviously. Like, this, this stuff is not my main focus. So if I'm at a level seven of, like, not caring about how I look, John the Baptist, on a scale of one to ten, was like on a level 50 or like a level 100. Like, he, just, he was not concerned with these things. And again, it wasn't that he was calling others to the same thing. Rather, the Lord is using John the Baptist to point out where we may have divided affections. I wonder how many of us would be willing to go to that depth of sacrifice for the Lord. How many of us would give up our things and our possessions if the Lord asked us to? Or are we so attached to our possessions our lifestyles, that there would be no hope of obedience if God called us to forsake everything to follow him. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a huge blessing to live in this country. It's a huge blessing to live in this country. There's so much opportunity, so much prosperity, so much freedom, but it's also a curse. It's also kind of a curse to live in this country because with that freedom, with that prosperity, with that opportunity comes the potential bondage to those things. A rich young ruler once came up to Jesus and wanting to be right with God, he said, What should I do? Keep the commandments. I do that. What else should I do? And Jesus he looks at this guy and he says, Sell everything that you have, come and follow me. The Bible says that that rich young man he walked away grieving because he owned a lot of property. He was rich. And then Jesus says, Truly I say to you, it is hard. For a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said that it was hard for a rich person to enter heaven, that it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle. It's easier for this extremely large animal to enter through a hole that was made for a single a single strand of thread than it was for a rich man, a rich person to enter heaven. And the reason that Jesus said this was that the rich man was grieved. He was distressed. He was sorrowful at the idea of having to give up all of his possessions. This feeling, this attachment, this bondage to possessions is what makes it difficult for rich people to enter heaven. Of course, Jesus said all things are possible with God, obviously, but it is nevertheless hard for a rich person to enter heaven. Now you may be thinking, yeah, it must be hard for those rich people over there, for those rich people in Beverly Hills and Malibu and West, West LA, like, you know, with, with, with their cars and their real estate and their stock options and whatnot, like it, yeah, it must be difficult for these rich people over there. But the rich people aren't just over there. The rich people are in here as well. They are in here right now, the rich people are here. Globally speaking, and it's super appropriate to speak in global terms, globally speaking, you are rich. You are rich. Using median, we're about to get a little statistic-y, using median household income numbers, if you make $1,000 a month, if you make $1,000 a month, that's $12,000 a year, which would make you poor in this country, that would put you under the poverty line. That, that's, that's how poor you are if you make $12,000 a year. You are below the poverty line. You would still be making more money with your $12,000 a year than the median household income of 74 other countries. And I'm talking about you make $12,000 a year and it's just you. You don't live at home. You don't live with your parents. Like, it's just, it's just you making $12,000 a year. That's, that's a struggle, in this country, but you are still making more money. You are still above the median household income of 74 other countries. Your below poverty line $12,000 a year salary is greater than the bottom 29 countries combined. And that's essentially if you're just working part time. 1,000 a month, 12,000 a year, you're only working 17 hours a week at minimum wage. But if you have a full-time job, dude, you're making way more than $12,000 a year. And then throw on top of that health insurance benefits, vision benefits, dental benefits, paid time off, retirement benefits, whatever other benefits that you get. Heck, at Subway, while you're on your shift, you get a free sandwich while you're on your shift. A lot of places, you know, if, you're not, if you work there, but you're not on shift, you get a discount. All of these benefits, Bottom line, we are rich in this country. We are. But we've, we've been convinced that we're not rich because we don't have what the top 1% has. But we are rich. And we may scoff at the idea of someone who is so, so super wealthy not being able to part ways with their private jet. But what about you? What about you? What are you unwilling to part ways with? I was reading about someone who was so moved by a sermon that was preached on this, the rich young ruler that he, as a result of it, he decided to sell his house and then move in with his parents. He said, the house that I'm going to have in heaven is going to be ridiculously better. So where I live right now, it doesn't matter. Some of you are like, he moved back in with his parents. Oof. But that's what he did in order to obey the Lord. There's another story of a guy who he was tithing 20% of his income. He was regularly tithing 20% of his income. For those of you who, are, who don't know what tithing is, it's you know, giving money to the church because that's what you know, the Bible says. You know? Pastor Steve always talks about, not always, but whenever tithing comes up, he's just like, hey, the Bible says you need to tithe. The Bible says you need, to, you need to bring your tithes to the church. If you don't want to do it, if you don't want to obey God, then don't. That's fine. Whatever. We don't need it. God doesn't need you. It's all about obedience. It's about obedience to God. So this guy... Typically, people tithe 10%, but this guy was tithing 20%. He was giving 20% of his income, but then his income dropped for some reason. His income dropped, and so he had a decision to make. He said, am I going to continue tithing the way that I've been tithing, or am I going to start tithing less? But he wanted to show God that he trusted in his providence, so what he did is he began tithing 30% of his now decreased income. He began giving a greater percentage of his income in response to his income dropping overall. That's faith. Like John the Baptist though, I'm not saying that this is what we all need to do. You don't need to wear moo's that you got at you know, a thrift store. And you don't, you don't need to eat beans and rice every day. Which, side note, there's this guy named Dave Ramsey. You guys ever heard of him? He's like this financial guy, but he's like, he's Christian. So, you know, Dave Ramsey, he'll have people call in. He has this radio show and people call in and, and they're just like, uh, you know, I have, I have $100,000 in debt and I make, you know, $13 an hour. I make, you know, $10,000 a year. And so he goes into like, okay, this is what you're going to do to get yourself out of this mess. You're going to sell everything you have. You're, going to, you're just going to sell it. I, can't, I don't know if I'm doing this action properly, but like you're, going, you're going to sell everything. If you can sell it, you're going to sell it. You're, you're going to be selling so much stuff that the kids think they're next. And, and, and you're going to sell the family dog and, and whatever. And you're not, you're not going to step foot in a restaurant unless you're working in that restaurant. You are not eating out. From this point forward, you are eating beans and rice, rice and beans. And every time he would say that, I'd be like, hey, man, what's wrong with rice and beans? Like I grew up on rice and beans. Like, don't, don't be talking about rice and beans as if it's, if it's you know, uh, uh, peasant food. Dave Ramsey, talking about my rice and beans. Anyway. But, like I said, <laughs> these examples of people giving, giving up things for the Lord, I'm not saying that this is what we all need to do, but it begs the questions. It begs the questions do you actually trust God? Are you willing to give things up for his kingdom? Is there anything in your life that you are enslaved to that would cause you to grieve and sorrow if God said to give that up? Shoes, ladies and guys, shoes, purses, ladies, better not be guys. Purses, it's not a purse. it's a purse, <laughs> video games sports teams, people, TV shows, music, movies, cars, food, junk food. Now I'm starting to feel attacked. Junk food, the pursuit of happiness. You know, these things that aren't necessarily sin, but if left unchecked, the enjoyment of these things could become sinful and idolatrous. Reflect on these things, you guys. Reflect on these questions. Do you actually trust God? Are you willing to give something up if God asks you to give it up? Check your heart in this moment. Check your heart. Ask God to reveal anything that may be there, any affections that may be greater than your affection for Christ. And don't dance around it either. Don't dance around it. Don't speak gibberish and then do a spinning fall to the ground like my son. If anything is in there that is sinful, inside your heart, he already knows about it. And if, if there's something in there, can just confess it. He just wants to hear you say it so that he can move on to the refining and the healing process. God, I'm sorry that I value my sleep more than I value obedience to you. God, I'm sorry that I value my boyfriend or my girlfriend more than I value time with you. God, I'm sorry that I value my career or the pursuit of my career more than I value obedience to you. God, I'm sorry that I value financial security and comfort more than I value obedience to your spirits, leading to be more giving. God, I'm sorry that if you told me to change anything about my current lifestyle, the tempo, the tempo of my life, my schedule, the things that I have, the people that I, that, I, that I hang around with, the comfort that I enjoy. I'm sorry that if you asked me to change any of those things, I can't confidently say that I'd be willing to do it. I confess this idolatry to you. Please cleanse me and give me the strength to repent. And this brings us now to our final point of the night, sounding heretical. So guys, search, search your hearts. Search your hearts. And ask God to search you as well. Psalm 139, it's a good psalm, you should read it. It ends with these two verses. It says, search me, God, and know my heart. Put me to the test and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there is any hurtful way in me. And lead me in the everlasting way. That's how it ends. But this is how it starts. It says, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I get up. You understand my thought from far away. You scrutinize my path and my lying down. And you're acquainted with all of my ways. Even before there was a word on my tongue, behold, Lord, you know it all. Maybe you just need to say to God right now, Lord, God, who has already searched me and already knows me, keep searching me, keep knowing me, and let me know if there's anything hurtful within me. Reveal me to myself. Adam and Eve, they saw the fruit, Lord. It looked tasty, it looked attractive, and it had a perceived benefit, but it killed them. And you told them that it would. But they didn't trust you when you told them that you didn't, they didn't trust you when you told them about the hurtful way that was within them. God, don't let that be me. Don't let that be us. You guys don't let that be you. If right now God is showing you something that's inside of you that is harmful to you, don't ignore his warning. Don't ignore that. I know it may look tasty. Whatever that sin is, it looks tasty. Whatever it is, it may may look attractive. It may even have a perceived positive outcome for you. It may seem beneficial for you. Love is love, but it's going to kill you. It's going to kill you. Repent, give it up, allow no idols in your heart. Allow no possessions to be enthroned in your heart above Christ. Allow no comfort to be enthroned in your heart above Christ. God is calling you out of the city of Jerusalem and he's calling you into the wilderness. As the final verse in Psalm 139 says, he is leading you in the everlasting way. And that's what I want to make sure we leave off on tonight. God is leading us in the everlasting way. He's leading us in the everlasting way. If you're a believer in here, we talk a lot about repentance and holiness and following closely after the Lord. But I understand that if we begin to focus on these things too much to the neglect of God's grace and his mercy and his faithfulness, that you can become discouraged and have a skewed view of God. And if there's anyone in here who isn't a believer, uh, and or you're not walking with God, you once knew God, but you're not walking with him now, what I'm about to say does not apply to you. But it could. It could. But my believers, you need to remember and understand that your salvation, it began with the grace of God. And God's grace is going to continue to carry you until you finally reach the end and receive that great reward when you enter heaven. If it started with his grace, the middle, the end, it's going to be with grace. If there is anything that you could do to ruin that grace, then that would mean that you are more powerful than God. But you're not. So there's absolutely nothing that you can do, believer, that would compromise God's grace in your life. Romans 8 verses 1 through 4, it says this, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for all those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, sending his own son as a man and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. So if you believe in Jesus Christ, if you sit here and you believe in Jesus Christ, whom God the Father has sent as an offering for all of your sins, then you have not only fulfilled the law because of your faith, but now you are no longer under that law of sin and death because your faith in Christ has set you free from it. Your faith in Jesus has now placed you under the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And that law says that you are free from the law of sin and death. You're free. Galatians 5.1, it says that it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Why did he set us free? So that we can be free. So be free, be free. And at the risk of sounding heretical, feel free to fall short. Feel free to mess up. As you make these strides to pursue Christ, to pursue holiness, to repent, to cleanse your life of all obstacles, to be cleansed of all of your unrighteousness, to be a disciplined and zealous follower of God, feel free to fall on your face in the process. You're going to mess up. And God already knows it. And you have been set free from that law of sin and death. There's nothing left to condemn you. Because he loved you so much that he sent his one and only son to die for all of your sins. How many of your sins? All of them. That's past, present, future. Understand the degree of God's love for you understand the degree of God's love for you and understand your relationship with him and his relationship with you. You are his child. Now, if you are a believer, you are his child. He's not some tyrant or disciplinarian, just like waiting in the shadows, anticipating the next time that you're going to fall short so that he can crush you as soon as you do. He is your loving Abba father. And because of what Christ has done, he sees you as perfect. He sees you as perfect. You have no spot or blemish on you. You are perfect in his eyes because he has given you his own perfection. It's like if if when you get to heaven, there's a guard at the door, and he says, you can't come in here. You're not properly dressed. And as you sadly turn around to walk away... You feel someone put a a robe on you, and you're like, man. You turn around, and you realize it's Jesus. He put this robe on you, and you're just like, dude, Jesus, this is nice. What is this, velvet? You know, just like, man, this is a nice robe. Like, wow, whose is it? And he's going to look at you, and he's going to say, that's mine. That's my robe. That's my righteousness that I have placed on you so that you can be here. And I gave up everything to make sure that you can be here and wear that robe. While the demands for holiness and the demands for repentance and the demands for obedience, they're real and they need to be taken seriously. Never forget that the truths of God's grace, his faithfulness, his mercy, his love, his fatherhood, those are real as well. And those also need to be taken very seriously. And for you non-believers in here, if there are false believers in here, false converts in here who have realized that you don't know God, that love and that grace and that mercy and that faithfulness and that fatherhood, it's available for you too. But you have to believe. You have to believe, and you have to repent. You have to be willing to lose your life in this world, on this side of heaven, in order to find your life in Christ, in heaven. It's a free gift. All anybody needs to do is accept it. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. I thank you that you have set us free from the law of sin and the law of death. I thank you that your grace has atoned for all of our sins, what Jesus Christ did on the cross, dying for our sins, taking the punishment for us on our behalf. That's enough. That sacrifice was enough for you. That did it all, that took care of everything. I thank you that all we need to do now is we need to believe in what you've done And we need to turn, we need to repent, we need to, we need to seek after you so that you can change our hearts so that you can change our desires. And God, I pray for all the believers in here who have made that profession of faith, who are born again, who have been regenerated by the spirit, that you would continue to encourage them, Lord, that you would show them how much you love them, that you would show them your grace, that you would help them to understand even more the grace that you have, the love that you have. And Lord, I also pray for those in here who don't know you or those who thought that they knew you. Maybe they once knew you, but their life over the past few years has revealed that they don't. God, convict them by your kindness Lead them to repentance. And I want to provide that opportunity. So if there's anybody in here, everybody just keep your eyes closed and keep your heads bowed so that people can have a private moment with the Lord. If there's anybody in here who needs Jesus, who needs that forgiveness, you need to be born again or you need to come back because you're backslidden. I want to pray for you. I want to pray for you. I'm not going to make you come up here. I'm not going to do that. I just, I want to pray for you because you need to be prayed for. But I need to know who you are. So if that's you, raise your hand so that I can pray for you. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Is there anybody else? I'm going to pray for you guys. Is there anybody else? All right, Father, I just pray for these two people who raised their hands. I don't know exactly where they are, but you do, Lord. And so, God, I thank you that you've spoken to them. I thank you that you've shown them their need for your forgiveness. They need to come to you. They need to come back to you. They need to be born again, God. And so I just pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, the same power that brought them to this realization that they need you, that you would regenerate them, that you would cause them to be born again, that you would remove that heart of stone that they have inside of them and that you would give them a heart of flesh, as your word says. Cause them to be new. Give them new desires. Give them new love. Give them new eyes to see sin the way that you see it and to see holiness the way that you see it, Lord. And I pray, Father... That from this point forward, that there would be no more games, no more going back and forth, no more falling into sin on purpose. None of that, Lord. Give them the strength and the grace to repent and to follow wholeheartedly after you, Lord. Thank you for this night, God. I just pray, Father, that as we continue this night of worship, that you would be pleased with the songs that we sing Thank you for your grace. I pray these things in Jesus' name.